This is Christopher Cardenbicus, and you're listening to Paper Cuts on Clock Tower Radio. Christopher Cardenbicus for Paper Cuts, and you're listening to a very special episode on our Los Angeles tour, um, taking some really great interviews with zinesters, performers, and artists uh, as we've been traveling for the Los Angeles Art Book Fair, and I'm very excited to be in the backyard of Darren Klein, who's an amazing curator, zine master, curator, producer, and general all-around supporter, and I'm sitting with Stephen Raines, the first uh, city poet of West Hollywood, and Ian McKinnon, artist, performer, activist, and we are all involved with the publication Three Pack Jack and the series of performances at Akbar, which we are now sitting a stone's throw away from. <laughs> um, so we're excited to be talking to these three about the project. Three books set, Three Pack Jack, book one, The Whole Story, a night of performance curated by Stephen Rains. A queer assemblage, body, autobiography, carnal creativity, and ass-plosive art. This is Take Two. I'm Stephen Rains, reading my introduction from the first evening of the whole story, which took place on April 7th, 2013 at Akbar as part of Apartment 3F's performance series. I'm just going to uh, jump into the middle of the intro. Eva Insler was groundbreaking with her vagina monologues in 1996, and given all her positive body talk, one might think anal monologues would have been her next orifice show of choice. But she never staged that production. Gay men are forever boasting about their cocks. But what about their cracks? It's rare to hear a man brag about his caboose with the same amount of enthusiasm. I'm more interested in gay men's whole stories. I believe our life story could be told through the lens of our butt. Our gay history could be told by how the ass itself has been treated throughout time. Anal depictions in the art of ancient Greece. The bisexual king Edward II dying by a hot poker shoved up his ass. Oscar Wilde's imprisonment for engaging in sodomy. And Cuban writer Ronaldo Arenas having his manuscripts smuggled out of prison in the asshole of a friend. In this whole history, there'd also be the sad story of AIDS and how being the bottom is high risk in a position being feared or even avoided. Recently, the homophobic politician Rick Santorum's last name was coined to mean, quote, the frothy mixture of lube and fecal matter that is the byproduct of anal sex, end quote. I hate that definition. The byproduct of anal sex shouldn't, shouldn't be used as an insult. I think it should be used as a thing of honor and pride. I've never had a problem sleeping in the wet spot, and I don't think any of you should have a problem with it either. That wet spot is the byproduct of sex, hopefully good sex, and it shouldn't be a source of shame or to be thought of as gross. I want a world void of ass shame, one in which the ass is given its glory as the dynamic object that it is. Tonight, you're going to hear some brave and bold talk by men performing and singing about their asses. So talking about the whole story and cocktails, 
Ian, you just mentioned that you saw three dicks in one hole. Yeah, yeah. I saw a picture uh, somewhere. Uh, uh, and, I, yeah, the question is how do three guys do it? Like, you know, the body positions. For But, yeah, it was like, he's, you know, the, the bottom's sitting on the first dick. And then the second dick's going in the way you think it would. And then the third comes like down from the top, right? yeah. <laughs> not upside down. Like, yeah. so how are all the men's legs? You know, it's like the legs get in the way. You've had even on a three-way, yes. Man. Well, I, yes, I have. Um, <laughs> and it's there is a lot of legs get it. Yeah, yeah. You I couldn't do imagine the legs. someone else. I've never had three involved. dicks inside. No. Yeah, but two. Oh yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> All right, so that's a great segue as a way to talk about uh, three-pack Jack, the whole story, cocktails, and come as you are. And what's really great about right now being in the backyard with you guys is that this series of three performances was organized by Stephen, and Ian, you're the only other person other than Stephen who is part of every night. Um, So I would like to hear you guys just talk about how the evenings progressed and what the differences were between the performances, or maybe... Ian, because you did perform in each of them, how did you set up your performance differently for each night? Oh, well, um, each the, each performance had a sort of similar structure, the idea of, of doing a, a manifesto mm-hmm. uh, that was also musical around the themes. And, you know, I guess the, the setup came, you know, from Stephen with, uh, you know, the different themes of, of cock and cum and ass uh, from a gay male point of view. And uh, and some touch of like personal story. It seemed like like Stephen wanted us to, or you wanted us to um, dig deep. So yeah, I tried to combine those elements, like a little bit of, of personal material that would would be um, you know hot to divulge or or um, yeah. or you know hot on different levels, and then uh, combining it with uh, with music, you know, to give it that oomph. We were talking a little bit earlier about how it's a little bit strange to see your performance in writing because as a viewer, as someone who's reading the pieces, you don't really have your cadence, your delivery. Um, yeah, or the audience yeah. interaction. I mean, the whole thing. I mean, for me, as, as, as a live performer, it's like that, like seeing the, the work in print. I'm like, oh, I can't change it. Or, yeah. oh, it doesn't have, it, it, it doesn't have that shine. Um, that I can bring to it that you know might put my put my gay spirit into the words put a feeling put you know my loins into it and then also f- feeding off the the audience and, and connecting to them it's all such a for me each performance was so different they were so hot it was like the rooms were packed with like super sexy gay guys and you could just you know and it's we're just going on and on about common but not just in an exploitative way in this like you know psychological way or in this deeper deeper way that um, just really felt like it honored all the subject matter and honored our gayness you know so um, I think the book definitely captures that um, yeah I would agree because the book is kind of my entry point into the material I was not there for any of the performance nights but each one did like honor the participants and the subject matter and that was a really wonderful thing as an outsider to kind of be pulling that from that and being able to glean a little bit of the feeling from the performances um, so it's just interesting to me coming at it from like only seeing it in text and images and sure. Stephen and myself and Darren living with the text for so long as we were designing the book and putting it together 
So maybe this is a good chance for you, Stephen, to talk about your relationship to the material, both in print form and in uh, performance. Sure. I mean, one thing I want to talk about with Ian here is that when I first came up with the idea of the whole story, I knew I definitely wanted Ian involved. And when I enjoyed the experience of curating the evening, I came up with the idea of the other two evenings, and I knew that um, Ian was the only performer I wanted to uh, be a part of each consecutive evening. I wanted a rotating cast of people and the reason I wanted Ian is um, you know just he's such a strong performer and someone who's completely dedicated to the material he's also the cornerstone of our our queer performance art scene in Los Angeles yeah. and that there's this um, been this kind of like second renaissance or would you call it that of the performance art scene that's one of our goals yeah yeah and that that Ian um, has headed up and I just kind of felt like uh, he was the person I wanted um, for each one and also closing each night I felt like um, you know everyone was talented and really brought a lot to the table but I thought Ian uh, to have his expertise um, closing out each evening was important oh yeah it was totally fine and actually, can you guys talk a little bit about the queer performance scene here in LA, uh, which is also really great because Ian, you're right after this interview going over to Planet Queer at Akbar. Yeah. So, if you can talk a little bit about Planet Queer, but also about Akbar as a performance site and it, its importance to the city. Oh, I think Akbar's so important to the city. I mean, they it just because of of the it's it's like sort of an unofficial uh, cultural center uh, yeah. of LA in a way. Uh, and there's definitely, yeah, a very cool, unique, I think, queer performance scene that we've been cooking up there for, for basically four years. Yeah, Ian, every single, uh, the third Monday of every month, mm-hmm. Ian uh, does something called Planet Queer, which is a um, lightly curated evening of performance. And um, then I think shortly after you started creating Planet Queer, uh, David LeBaron and Andrew Henkes created Apartment 3F. Uh, which is another performance series, yeah. and well, they had done that before, but yeah, was it okay? I don't yeah, remember the timeline, right? <clears throat> but yeah, exactly, and that's what that's what uh, produced this the, your events. Yes, so these events were produced through Apartment Three F. Um, so it is. I liked you saying that uh, it's this kind of cultural institution. Yeah, they definitely point. got the ball rolling. I mean, the first show they did there was my solo show, The Gay Historgy, and that kicked off their Apartment Three F series maybe in 2010, I feel like. Uh, and I had been doing Queer Mondays at Highways Performance Space for three and a half years. And then that sort of like evolved into Planet Queer. Um, so it's been actually like, I don't know, six or seven years of kind of cooking. You know, yeah. I mean, I've been working for 15 years in the city, I guess. And uh, I don't know, the scene is super diverse. I, people ask how to describe it and stuff. I mean, there's so many. I think it's definitely about queer individuality for me, of nurturing that. Like, you know, moving the liberation inside ourselves and and really, you know, becoming our unique queer beings as artists. Not necessarily one, like, you know, overarching style. Although, yeah. you know, lots of people are very glittery and costumey and, and, you know, what you'd expect maybe, but also not. Maybe that could segue into um, uh, Get More Gay, uh, your workshops. Um your performance workshops and your your um, kind of organizing and mentoring and and uh, 
gathering together other queer spirits and also speaking of spirits spirit studio Oh yeah. Well, that was Spirit Studios. A really uh, was it was unfortunately was a really cool space uh, in Silver Lake where we'd been uh, also doing shows for about four years, right? And I had been leading Get More Gay performance workshops, where you know uh, artists of all persuasions we come together and and um, work to create performance art pieces in a gay centered context. Um, you know, like drawing on ideas of Harry Hay, like subject-subject consciousness and ideas of Carpenter and Mitch Walker and, and Whitman and, you know, this, this idea of comradeship and, and, uh, and, and combining performance art with gay liberation and queer liberation. And, uh, yeah, we did that for four years there. Super cool. Definitely fed lots of performances and, yeah. And then maybe also a little bit about the um, the um, human resources projects. Oh yeah, we've been doing this project uh, for two years called the Adonis Project, which is about which was inspired because so many uh, gay and queer spaces have been closing in the city. We've lost like so many. Um, and you know, new ones are popping up downtown, which is cool. But it's also continuing to it, it's all an evolving you know scene. And in fact, globally, we realize that you know the gayborhoods are shrinking, and literal gay space is disappearing. And so we wanted to do a, a project that addressed that issue. And so we we did a pop up of uh, by taking the Adonis Theater, which was a, a gay porno theater in New York City that was super notorious. Um, yeah. And, and and resurrecting it at human resources um, to call attention to the issue creatively, uh, sort of a, an act of creative career liberation as well. And, and the workshops fed into that some too. I'd actually love to hear all three of you talk about the idea of mentorship with your practices because I feel like all of you do that in very different ways. Stephen, as an educator, Darren, with all of your curatorial projects and the way you shepherd people through zine making, so, like, what is what's important about mentoring or being an educator as part of your practice? So let's, we can start with Ian. Oh, uh, I love it! It's like so much about like what Planet Queer is about is like was about creating a, a consistent venue, like a platform for queer people to stand up and get on and figure themselves out and and express themselves and to create new queer visions. And um, the workshops were all about that. For me, it's all about. Um, a gay liberation, queer liberation through art, through through performance and creativity. Yeah, I feel like um, I would ask Ian. Did you? I feel like you took on a responsibility that maybe um, other people have definitely done over time through the decades, but also maybe at a specific cultural moment in Los Angeles. Did it feel like there was? Um, a lack of of um, space, a lack of mentorship, and and you just how did you you were compelled to to be kind of like let's do this, you guys, and I'll I'll help organize it. Yeah, totally. Because um, I had been curating some nights at highways, and it just it, it they couldn't be they weren't consistent enough. It was like I could only pull it off every so many months, and I was still figuring out how to even do all of that, and. Um, yeah, and it just felt like all of us were so desperate that, you know, we needed the practice, we needed um, a stage, we needed something consistent, yeah. consistent, that there were, like, little things happening here and there. And so, yeah, it, it felt like that was important. 
Yeah, that I, you created that structure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I remember looking looking at some some of them, being like, "Fuck, we just needed to be doing this more." Mm-hmm. And and why, you know, there's so much support for other kinds of you know art that, and where's the queer support? Yeah. So it felt like, oh, I'm going to do this, and um, yeah. What's also nice about it happening every single month is the more people are performing, the, the more they learn, the they get an opportunity to hone their craft. Yeah. And so then when they do enter other spaces that are larger than Akbar, right, that they know what they're doing. You know, I think yeah. that it's um, it's a great kind of like training ground. Too, when talking about mentorship, it's also fiercely entertaining and moving and powerful just to be in the audience for those evenings. Yeah, totally. Darren Klein, you are listening to Paper Cuts on Clock Tower Radio. Three Pack Jack, book number two, Come As You Are, a night of performance curated by Stephen Raines, a queer assemblage, raunchy revelations, indelicate retellings, and ejaculatory excursions. This is Stephen Raines, and I'm going to be reading the introduction to Come As You Are, which was given... On October 13th, 2013, at Akbar as part of Apartment 3F's performance series. I want to thank all of you for coming here tonight. That's a cheap pun, but true. I'm thankful your father came 20, 30, 40 years ago for all of you to be here today. Tonight's printed programs were rolled in cock rings. Those aren't napkin rings. Should I give you a moment to put yours on now? I'm wearing mine. I love Akbar in Apartment 3F, where I can approach David and Andrew with a crazy idea like this one, a jizz-packed evening, and have them say yes. I curated tonight because of my feelings about cum. A few years ago, I dated a guy, a hot fuck but a horrible match as a boyfriend. Sometimes when I'd fuck him, he'd come in spurts, these small dribbles, 
Immediately after, or even during the last few strokes, he'd milk out. He'd say, I need to drink more water. It'd always take me a while to come after that, not because I demand a partner whose come was a gushing river. I was distracted. I kept thinking how horribly unsexy it was that he would judge ejaculation, how he didn't see climax as a celebration, but as something to grade, A, B, or C, as if at the end of a few months there'd be a GPA. Coming is my favorite hobby, come a byproduct of the heaven that is climax. I can recall the first time I jacked off, maybe the sixth or seventh grade, and how exciting it was to get to the point of climax. My entire body shook. I felt electric and beautiful and magical and a current of electricity so strong that I couldn't finish. I stopped. You see, the sensation was so intense, I couldn't keep my arm moving. This happened three other times. I unknowingly became an edger for those first few times, but never again. I don't like delayed gratification. I'm not a patient man. I don't postpone joy. I run to it. I've never been an edger in life or sex. I feel as if I'm worthy of it all and that life can be short and I want to drink, gulp, and guzzle it all in. I'm not one to spit out joy or keep my lips closed when it comes. So, okay, so this is my the the piece I did for the whole story. All the pieces had music behind them. This one has like kind of the least music behind it, but it was the it was the first one. Yes. And uh so here it is. I'll I'll read it and and I'll and uh I mean it's such an audience participatory thing too, so maybe you guys can sing along at the end. We'll see. Do you want to say what the music was? Oh, um I'll read it when it comes okay, up. As this, I don't know. This is a surprise. Perfect. All right. <laughs> okay, so this is Ian McKinnon's Gay Anus of the Universe Manifesto. And I think I come running up the middle aisle. Did somebody say anus? <laughs> My anus just loves attention. When guys are like, I want to eat your whole. I'm like, yes, please. When guys are like, I want to fuck your little butt. I'm like, yes, please. When guys are like, I want to swallow your hot fucking load. I'm like, okay, I like that too. But ever since I was a child, my anus needed attention. As a little boy, I dreamed of getting fucked. But I was born into a heterodominated, homophobic society that made me feel ashamed for wanting to get fucked by a man. Tried to make me feel evil for wanting to get fucked by a man. Tried to tell me the only purpose of my asshole was to shit. Fuck you liars! Idiot liars! Turns out, my anus is a source of glory and enlightenment. Turns out, my anus is a gateway to the numinous transpersonal gay psyche. Turns out, it's basically a sacred slutty, needy, powerful, tight, but receptive, buzzing hive of pleasure. Sometimes it's like a beehive in my butt, you guys. It's all dripping and gooey and needy and needy. My anus is so needy. My anus is so needy, I had to please it. I remember my first penetration was a small vibrator when I was around 14. I squatted on it in the hallway, staring into my own eyes in the full-length mirror, but it wasn't until I was 19 that I got fucked for the first time when that gorgeous man climbed in my dorm room window. He was tall, 
Latin, with jet black hair and gorgeous eyes. He had an incredible sex stare. He was a known player, and he had a smile that makes you chubby. He had been seducing me slowly all week at the Dallas 18 and Up clubs, the Village, Club One, down in Deep Ellum. I couldn't believe a man this beautiful would want me, but there he was, like Don Juan or something, knocking on my dorm room window to climb up and make me a man. I remember I had one condom in a silver box next to my bed. Finally, I was going to find out what it was like to get fucked my childhood dream. I'd wanted it my whole life. And he laid me out on the bed and said, Here, it's easier like this. It was beautiful. My anus finally full of cock like a thirsty man in the desert given the nectar of the gods and we shot our god nectar everywhere, okay? And since then, men have been very pleased with my hole. They call or text about it. They say things like, your ass is amazing, or I've never felt an ass like yours. It undulates, it grips my cock in waves, it blows my mind. You are the best fuck. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> oh, a cute karaoke version of Knocking on Heaven's Door. Ooh. But I don't let it get to my head too much. This city is full of hot ass and hole that needs to get licked and fucked. And that feeling, well, I can't take full credit for it. I mean, yes, I have skills and a hot butt that's incredible to fuck. But the real source of that power isn't in my literal ass. My ass is a mere doorway to that flaming gay eros. My ass is a symbol, a literal manifestation of something that's bigger than all of us, yet works through us, the God anus, the whole of heaven, and if my anus is a doorway to heaven, you know what I'll be. Exactly, honey. Sing it with me. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Come on up, you. Stand up and give your anus a little knock, you guys. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. It's okay. Touch your anus in public. I dare you. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. I feel the anus power. And every fuck is a prayer to you, gay creator. Every time I rim a nice hole, I kiss the face of the homo lord of the universe. Every orgasm is a sacrifice to the glory of gayness. Every man who turns me on is that internal lover within here to help me and my anus fight the shame and fight the homophobia and get more gay. To fight for gay anuses everywhere. I fuck to forward gay liberation. I fuck to create a new gay world. My anus is radical. My anus is magical. My anus is here to transform the world, and so is yours. Woo! <laughs> I remember every oh. delicious moment. Oh. I, I remember being so um, excited and, and and thrilled, and also uh, with so many so many funny things you said, like give your anus a little knock. Oh like, yeah, knock. and they did. Right. People were like, you know, <laughs> it's a nice thing to do. Yes, it really is. Yeah, uh, and just also like the visceral things that you, the poetry of like the 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 humming hive, you know, uh, oh, is yeah. so delectable and just beautiful and poetic. So yeah, it all comes flooding back, and it's it's great to have you re. It's great to have you. Pref- 
do the performance and then the book was made and then you're like performing out of the book. Yeah. So, this whole, <laughs> yeah. And even now that I, I just can't help, I want to evolve it, you know, right. a little bit for, for this setting. <laughs> but it's beautiful that it gets to be documented and that, and that people get to check it out and like connect to it in their own ways. I think it's so awesome. Mm-hmm. I, I hope, uh, hope lots of hands pick up all the books. Yeah, it's almost like a, you know, before the internet, people would have had to have relied on something like this book set to get this information and this mm-hmm. artwork. Um, and I feel like it kind of continues. And a lot of projects, I feel like I do, continue in that that um, that vein of wanting to spread information and artwork and spirit through through this seemingly antiquated art form, but um, but you know ideally someone in a small town would get this that's not in a major metropolitan area that wouldn't have access to or even someone in Los Angeles that for some reason or another doesn't have access to the Akbar or yeah. or yeah. any of the other queer spaces yeah or these performers or these ideas or these narratives that they can connect with and identify with and um, find like some kind of modeling and solace from yeah and I think yeah. that you know websites go down I mean, that's it, too. Like, websites aren't forever. Yeah. Like, you... I mean, how many of us go through our bookmarks and we're like, oh, that website's down. I wonder what I bookmarked there. And just to have something tangible that people can hold on to and sneak read whenever they want to mm-hmm. or um, yeah. just have them their shelf and revisit. Um, totally. It makes the ephemeral s- tangible. This performance, you know, is, is just that moment. And, and we... You know, the audience is left with the feeling and... And, uh, and the, that energy radiates in a way. It's, it, it's permanent. You know, there's permanent waves of energy that, you know, can change the world in, its, in their ways. But it's great to have the, the words too, because then the ideas can, can continue to, to you know, permeate. Yeah, and that's always been the problem with uh, performance art. I mean, even with plays, that the translation of plays to cinema doesn't always work. And with performance art, you know, there's a lot of videos of performances that don't really. They're, they don't hold it. They it doesn't capture the no, magic. It yeah. doesn't it's really different from actually it being there. Yeah. yeah, and yet I feel like somehow with Christopher's designs and Darren's ideas that they were able to really kind of recreate the evenings um, on paper that um, I haven't seen happen on video before for performance. Yeah, I think sometimes that like translation to a different medium can actually document performances in a really different and unique way because then it still crafts uh, an active audience. If you're reading this and trying to envision this performance, you're like creating this performance in your mind and trying to figure out like what it's actually like to be there. And then have to like build the Akbar stage from context clues and all the images. And that's really pretty fantastic. Yeah. And it was like during the process of, of designing and producing these books, especially in the design phase, it was really important to all of us to kind of make it clear from the very beginning that when you picked up this book, it wasn't just um, pieces of writing that people had done for the book, but that it was, that it's an actual documentation.
This is Ian McKinnon, and you're listening to Paper Cuts on Clock Tower Radio. So you have the task, um, or you accepted the task of writing something for each evening that you hadn't performed before. And I wanted to know, what was the experience like writing for each evening? And was there one one theme that was a little bit harder or you felt was a bit more daring than others? Oh, um, hmm. Well, I mean, each one had its special, you know, challenges and stuff. And they were all pretty inspiring themes. So, like, you know, cock, cum, and ass felt pretty... uh, fun and familiar the trinity the yeah trinity. The, right yes, exactly the trinity. The, yes yeah <laughs> the, <laughs> the gay essentials and so um i mean i feel like some of the like the the um the ass story you know the you know losing virginity all that was it was like a little risky to be telling like all of them, I tried to put something a little risky in it. Like, I'm going to talk about, like, childhood sexual desires or losing my virginity or, you know, different different issues. So, um, and I think, like, each one maybe got actually easier to do um, as I understood, you know, what, the, the scenario with the audience and stuff like that. You have one segment, it was in Come As You Are, where you talk about leaving the bar and having regret about not talking to the men at the bar, <laughs> which I think is such a universal experience, especially when we're younger. I think as we get older, we're a little bit more daring and approaching and cruising. But um, yeah, that I thought it, it was really sweet. There were a lot of sweet moments in your performances. Oh, good. Yeah, I wanted to have levels, you know, where it's like, oh, this is really you know, campy and, and, you know, ridiculous and, um, and fun. But then also, yeah, I wanted to have something truthful and, and personal and vulnerable as well. Um, cause you know, I mean, cock is, is delightful and, and wonderful, but there's also, you know, everything has a shadow side to it. And certainly growing up gay in a, in a homophobic world where, you know, the heterosexuality is shoved down our throats every, at every turn, you know, to focus in on, on our sexual organs in a gay way, it brings up a lot of like excitement, but it also brings up, yeah, vulnerability, damage, hurt. Yeah. And also it's like, what are those cocks attached to, right? They're attached to our queer bodies and these bodies who have grown up in the culture that we're living in, right? And just to have men share their autobiographical stories and talk about what it is like um, to be a gay man growing up. I, um, I felt like your sub- your performances had so much substance and humor and heart um, that oh, they were a great way to end the evening. Yeah. Oh, thanks. I mean, I think they were beautiful evenings in their each in their own way. I mean, like typically, I interact with with these with cock and cum either yeah with another guy or like through porn, you know, or and uh, not not on such a layered way that you set up for each one, you know. So I thought that was, I really appreciated that. And then I, I think, I imagine the audience did too. I mean, since I was last, I sat in the back of the house for a couple of them um, and, and sort of soaked up the, the audience energy. And it was special. It, you know, gay men, we, you know, it wasn't just a, a bar scene. It wasn't just, which, you know, was great. Or It was just a very unique scene. Yeah. Well, I mean, the evenings are very tongue-in-cheek, but they're not a joke. Like, this, these evenings were not jokes. They weren't punchlines. Um, I actually wanted humor and heart. 
And I wanted, you know, I liken the evenings to those recipes for children where you sneak vegetables into, you know, <laughs> totally. you know those where you like, you put carrots and, and brownies and things like that. Uh, that's how I saw these evenings. I thought like, oh, you know, to create evenings that would be attractive and desirable, um, but at the same time has some substance to them. And I, yes. I feel like it was achieved. You're like a gay Mary Poppins, a spoonful of sugar. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it so often stops at sugar. Because, like, the gay, they were hot evenings. I mean, they were, like, very sexy, I thought. And, like, people were, like, super turned on, you know. But because it had heart and because it had these deeper levels, it, it, it felt more complete. Yeah, and I want that kind of, um, I want that representation for queer people. I don't want us just to be the... Um, the sassy sidekick or um the or right or sexual exploitation only or something yeah and um just to have that full experience and that's what i thought was so great when darren approached me about creating books on the evenings and i thought wow more people can experience the experience this than just those that were in the room at akbar i mean i don't even know how many yeah. akbar seats but not enough yeah so it was a great opportunity to do that there were a lot of people there, though, mm-hmm. all the nights. I mean, it was packed. Yeah, gills. every single evening. Yeah. But it is nice to think about those performances having a second life through the printed material and having that then travel through, like, the book fairs that Darren and I have been doing in New York and L.A. and, like, the event here in Los Angeles, which is also a great way to have, like, a second event in another queer space and make, like, mark that occasion again and get everyone back together and kind of relive some of the sincere moments from the evenings and some of these like specific sexy moments of the evenings um so maybe looking back on it uh what's like something that you remember as a standout performance for each of these nights like in the whole story what's like a good moment for you as you're sitting in the back of the at the bar kind of like soaking in the audience and kind of like charging up for your performance oh that would be the anima art for that one oh, for yeah. sure <laughs> which is also the page of the book that everyone at my table stops at and then looks at and is like oh man look at that guy in the front row oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an amazing it's an amazing photograph of, yeah. of the audience having to take that in which is interesting because I was in the back of the house and um, from there it, it, it appeared super appreciative you know yeah. like there was like people were so like blown away and and uh, excited and challenged, you know, and I, I, I thought it was great. You know, I'd read about enema art before. I'd never seen anyone do it. You know? Also, um, Darren, can you describe what the enema art piece was for our audience? Yes. So Chris Lung, who is uh, a fabulous um, person and a sister of perpetual indulgence. Stephen, do you remember her sister name? Sister Dirty Sanchez. There you go. Sister, uh, Chris Lung, a.k.a. Sister Dirty Sanchez. And for those listeners who are unfamiliar with the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, please look them up. Activists and just all-around fabulous uh, people. Uh, Chris, with the help of an assistant who will remain unnamed, uh, was given um, colored enema water, three different colors, one at a time, uh, uh, which he shot out of his anus onto the... Uh, onto a canvas that he had on the floor and then he held it up at the end and it was a beautiful piece of splatter art. And of course that uh, the pattern that the splatter art piece made, we also then took that pattern, made a print out of it and that's what wrapped the special edition of this three book set. Um, Alright, so uh, Come As You Are, the second performance evening, what's a, a good memory for that? 
Well, the first good memory is the faces of the audience being projected covered in cum without <laughs> without most of them like being asked. Yeah, maybe. they had no permission whatsoever. So yeah. <laughs> that was a risky idea, and I like that you did it. And that's from like an app, right? Yeah. So um, Peter North used to have it's no longer online. A it was called the Decorator app. Peter North, the porn star known for his um, gushing cum shots, that. Um, <laughs> You could get an image, and unfortunately, iPhones, uh, you're not able to download it, so I had to befriend someone who had an Android. And you get an image, and you decorate their face with Peter Cum's... I'm sorry, Peter North's Cum. And so everyone who said... who RSVP'd yes for the evening, I then decorated their faces with Cum and put it um, on a big projector while playing Liz Fair's... uh, Hot white cum. HWC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Yeah. Uh, Darren Klein, cocktails? Cocktails. Let's see. There were so many. Well, first, let me say about every evening. Uh, one of the main features of every evening was just being in the room. I mean, the energy was really high. The The experience of going... So it's the Akbar, which... Uh, it's, it's a cultural, you know, as Ian said earlier, it's a cultural center really is what it's acting as when it's not, or, at, or alongside being a place where you can go and have a drink and mix and mingle with friendly people. Um, but it's, the whole thing happens on the dance floor. Um, and you, not that that's a bad place to do a performance night, but you kind of actually forget that it's a dance floor. You're, it's completely transformed into what I would consider a completely legitimate theater-going experience. And I've been to every kind of theater from the Dorothy Taper to, you know, the Akbar and everything in between. And it's a, it, the, the energy levels are really high. Everyone's waiting for the curtain. Uh, people are taking their seats. It's, you know, nobody knows what they're in for. Um, so that's kind of, that was kind of, for me, that was more than any one performance. Uh-huh. That was the whole social aspect of going and being, seeing friends and strangers, having this really high excitement level, knowing that you're going to get treated to some kind of amazing journey uh, of f- personal stories, things that are funny, things that are heartfelt, things that are sad. Um, to me, honestly, that was, that kind of took the, that kind of took the cake. But, um, I'll have to say also, maybe I'll just say um, our cover star uh, who did the Boylesque performance, Wes Wood, was an eye-opener for me because I had never actually seen Boylesque. And he had a fabulous performance where he came out um, as a very noir-type detective in an overcoat and a fedora and the whole, like, dress to the nines. Um, and, then he, and then he did this fabulous um, Boylesque story where he, as he stripped down very, you know, tauntingly and teasingly, uh, it, it, the, the story unraveled that the detective was looking for the robber, and then he... Tr- the detective through the act of stripping, a very artful act of stripping, transforms into the robber. So there was this kind of like whole dual personality thing going on. It was almost like a magic trick, but all he had to do was take his clothes off. (laughs) (laughs) Which we were all thankful for. I think we were thankful that he did that. It was hot. Yeah. Also, Matt Baum was there for each evening taking photographs, and that's why we had so much photographic documentation of the night. And so for performances that are primarily... Um, wordless, like uh, Westwood's performance and John Cantwell's performance, um, we were able to uh, have a lot of images in the books. 
yeah, each book has its own uh, almost photo spread documenting some of these performances that are not really words, but more actions, which is really wonderful. Yeah, they're beautiful. They're beautiful. All right, so now it makes me actually very sad that we're going to have to say goodbye to Ian as he runs off to uh, Queer Planet, the performance right down the road. So, Ian, thank you so much for being part of this recording and for hanging out with us. Oh, totally. Thank you so much for, for honoring the project and, and doing it and you know putting it out there. It's great. Well, should we all say goodbye to Ian? Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Ian. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. I'm going to blast off to Planet Queer. Stephen Rains, you're listening to Paper Cuts on Clock Tower Radio. Three Pack Jack, book number three, Cocktails, a night of performance curated by Stephen Rains, a queer assemblage, deviant discourse, salacious storytelling, and boylesque. I'm Stephen Rains. I'm going to be reading the introduction to Cocktails, which took place on April 27th, 2014 at Akbar which was part of Apartment 3F's performance series. Um, And I'm just going to jump right into the intro. There always seems to be two questions about my cock. I've always been slutty, but very late to hooking up online. I started only eight years ago. At the time, that seemed to most of my friends as if I were solving math problems with an abacus. I was used to hooking up with guys I'd met in clubs, thanks to my charm or their drunkenness. Online hooking up was a different terrain, I didn't put my face on my profile photo, partly for privacy, but also because I didn't think it was my best feature. Personality seemed hard to convey on a Craigslist ad. I wanted to follow the advice to put my best foot forward. 
So I've resorted to only cock shots. This comes to the most frequently asked question I'd see typed out in message after message. How big is it? The truth is, I don't know. I've never measured my dick. By the fourth or fifth guy I'd slept with, it was clear to me that I had a big dick. But it never did occur to me to measure it. Online, I list my dick dimensions as what my ex-boyfriend, the size queen, told me it was. 9.5. Impressive, right? But I have no clue if it's true. If I were to discover the exact dimensions, I'd feel really odd to change the number online. Besides, online inches are the most inaccurate form of measurement around. Let me tell you, this dick is a well-documented dick. I had a fuck buddy write a song about it, another lover write a poem, and many, many, many photos of it have been taken. Partially for those who want a souvenir, sometimes to find the right angle, and my taking them as a lure to get laid online. From the beginning of online hooking up, I did, however, want to visually represent its largeness on sites that I used. So, this was the first photo. A photo of a quarter on my dick. Some did ask if it was a dime or a nickel. So I moved on to a photo of my dick next to a beer can. I didn't even drink Miller Lite, nor do I drink out of cans. So that was also a misrepresentation. Then a fuck buddy told me that I needed a better photo and started to take some. He suggested the book on his nightstand to show the size. I found the title funny. Monster. I shudder to think what this previous L.A. gang member would think if he found this photo. And that gang member is the author of the book. About six years ago, I was offered a job to model. Some people are hand models, but I became a cockering model. I didn't even apply. I got it off reputation alone. And I would agree, modeling is hard work. The photographer and I kept staring at this one cockering, and we couldn't figure out how to put it on. And I'm still not sure it was right. I loved one cock ring. It was this brushed steel. And brushed steel was big that year. So if the number one question I get is, how big is it? The second question I get asked is, oddly, did your dad have a big dick? This question is asked all the time. Their line of questioning doesn't seem to be about figuring out dominant and recessive genes. The question has been asked too many times for me to think it's a simple father-son fetish that they might have. Though my father is a decent-looking man, I find it continually uncomfortable that gay men are wondering out loud if he's hung like a horse. Then, one day, watching the TV show Workaholics, it became clear to me that it's not commonly talked about, but dad-dick fascination is common. All of this made me wonder if my dad did have a big dick. I never saw it hard and rarely rarely saw him naked, but do you remember camping with him? I was 10, and we were using these military showers with lots of other male campers. We were all lined up, and I looked down the row at all the soapy, naked bodies. I noticed all of their body hair and big balls, but especially how much bigger all of their dicks were than mine. It's common knowledge you shouldn't compare yourself to others, This is especially true if your sight vision is that of a short, prepubescent 10-year-old. I started jogging about five years ago. This was my father's sport. For years, he was a jogger. When doing it, I felt really proud to have his good knees and his tall, thin frame. 
Somehow, taking on the hobby of running made me feel physically closer to my father than I ever had before. I was able to recognize our likeness, our similarities. I have his nose, his long fingers, his big ears, and if a big dick is part of those genetics, then it's an inheritance I'm grateful for. Maybe those guys just are asking just about my dad's dick. They want to know about their own father's cocks and how they measure up to him. Isn't it natural to only want to supersede one's parents? I don't know the answer to either of the two most questions I get about my dick. And I'm not about to get a measuring tape, and I'm certainly not about to ask my father. Okay, so Stephen, right here at the cover of every one of these books, it says, A Night Performed and Curated, or I'm sorry, A Night of Performance Curated by Stephen Rains. So can you tell us a little bit about the beginnings of Three Pack Jack? How did the performance series start? And what was the impetus? Like, what, what made you want to do this at Akbar? I've always loved performance art, and I've curated literary events for almost two decades, but I'd never curated performance art. And I had the idea of the whole story where I really wanted gay men to talk about their relationships with their assholes. I was very moved by the Vagina Monologues, uh, Eve Ensler's 1996 production. And, you know, and it's, it's a play that's commonly referenced and people talk about how enlightening it's, it had been. And I felt like gay men didn't have that talking about their bodies in a in a way that was substantial. And I wanted to create that with the whole story. And when did this actually start? We have the book being actually produced in 2015. Um, we're doing this recording in 2016, but the first performance was in 2013, yeah? Yeah, on April 7th, uh, 2013 at, at Akbar. Um so then let's move forward in time. Let's talk about like how Darren got involved in the project, how this ended up going from a series of three performances and then taking this transformative leap into the, uh, the pages of books and zines. Well, Darren Klein is one of my favorite people in Los Angeles, and it was great to see his face in the audience for every single evening. And shortly after the third evening, um, Darren approached me. Yeah, I just uh, enjoyed the evening so much. Uh, the energy levels were really high. The performances were really fantastic. And I thought, um, I, f- I felt a kind of a, 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 like there was, although we had received something amazing, it's almost like we had lost it at the same time because as performance goes, they were just of the moment. And I thought, what could we do to... Um, to kind of help those those moments live on, so I said, "Let's let's make a let's make a book for every evening of the. Let's do this great, <laughs> ambitious. In fact, there was I think there was an event coming up. There was some kind of an event coming up, um, and I and I said, "Oh, what if we made? Uh, what if we documented your performance nights for this event? And it was in like two months." And you're like, yeah, let's do it. And then we quickly figured out that it was going to take more than two months to uh, get all the material together and do the editing and uh, even find a designer, which ended up being you, Christopher. Yeah, so now I'm I'm kind of questioning the timeline because I don't remember if you guys contacted me um, when there was still only two months to get this all together or if it was like after that point. No, the idea existed for much longer than the two months that it would have taken to get it together for whatever the whatever the event was uh and then uh we said okay let's do this right it should be fabulous 
neither one of us has a lick of design skills. Uh, and so the first order of business was, um, uh, the first two orders of business were finding someone to help us, uh, technically and just gathering all of the material because, uh, Steven didn't have the material. It was just each, each piece was either improvised or, or, um, performed as a monologue or performed from memory. And, uh, so we had to get the we had to get the material together. Luckily, Stephen had the foresight to hire uh, a friend and photographer, Matt Baum, to to come and document all of them. I don't even know what you thought you would do with those pictures. I don't know what I I just wanted them documented because I I knew that the nights were going to be special and, you know, fortunately every single performer agreed to have their work in the in the books. I mean, it's, they were saying very daring things on stage and to have these things in print. There were some people, Johnny McGovern, he um, essentially improvised his entire uh, monologue that he then, um, there was a a very, uh, not bootleg recording, but a very like (laughs) lo-fi recording that um, Johnny had his assistant actually transcribe his talk, and that's how we were able to capture what Johnny had said. Most other people had these kind of rough notes that they talked from that they then created the monologues. But I was really mm-hmm. glad that everyone agreed to participate. Yeah. And another thing that happened is that I, I remember specifically, at least with Chris Lung, who did um, the the uh, the Enema art performance, he um, his his was just a performance. It was wordless. So um, for uh, for his, we we put the beautiful photographs of him doing the performance, but also he wrote after the fact. He actually ended up writing something really nice to explain yeah. why he had done it and what it meant to him. And um, so there were all these different levels. We gathered actual scripts that people worked from. Uh, uh, an improv an improvised piece was um, transcripted, and um, and uh, Chris wrote something really nice about his wordless yeah. performance. Which is also, there's a couple of things when you're putting a book together that I found really interesting with this process. One is that because it is documenting a performance, we're all very careful about the idea of how we edited the book and how we went through the actual text and what was actually, what was okay and what was not at all okay to cut out or excise or to change. And the other is that specific example of Chris Lung. I remember that's one of the first moments we were dealing with uh, performance documentation that had little or no text to it. And the way that we handled that book in the design document and how we designed the aesthetics surrounding that image and how we discussed to separate that from the other performances, the other photographs that just documented the authors instead of a larger performance shaped the rest of the book in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah. So from the very beginning, there was the idea to make sure that everyone knew that the books documented performance nights, but at the same time held up on their own as we didn't want just like a you know, a cut-and-dry textbook of this is what happened on, on a certain date, and here are some pictures, and here are the words. It had to have an aesthetic value that kind of... Um, we Well, we all kind of agreed that it would reference um, pulp fiction, so uh, we um, kind of designed the... We wanted... To, it to reference Pulp Fiction to a certain extent, but then we also wanted to, in that um, kind of frame, we also wanted to separate the uh, performance 
documentation from um, some of the author photos. So if, so if, a, if a reader was reading a monologue, for example, we considered it less performative. And so we did this treatment, a special treatment with your expert design help on how we represented those people with their monologues. And then, but it, it obscured the picture somewhat. There was a graphic treatment. As the uh, aircraft goes overhead here in the backyard in Los Feliz, the hospital is right there. Just some environmental sounds for us. Um, and then, uh, so we did this. We did a we did a, a a graphic treatment to the pictures that were um, more uh, reading style. To, to kind of give them this vintage look uh, and then but we didn't want to obscure the performance documentation photos so there's a kind of a difference between how they look yeah and uh, we're using Chris Lung as an example but there are also people like John Cantwell and Wes Wood where they had these um, wordless performances where they wrote up um, something specific for the book to kind of talk about their process and to explain what uh, was actually going on in the photographs and editing is tricky, right? Because you don't you don't want to edit the magic out of a piece. Um, you know, there is there is something that can, that can be done where you continually edit and you you know take take that magic that was there in the performance out. Which is also something very specific for your practice as a poet, as you're using like an economy of words and trying to establish um, a specific environment and mood. So it was also just interesting working with you and to see you handling the text of other people and how this project kind of married two aspects of your practice, right? It's like the performative aspect as well as the publishing aspect. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about it as a poet, I think of Walt Whitman. I mean, those, um, the continual revision, revising of his work um, didn't do, did his work a great disservice. Um, but yeah, it was so I don't see myself as a performer really or even like that performative as a as a poet, but I think that it's important, you know, for these evenings I didn't even think of the concept of a book and it was just yeah. my love of performance that I wanted these very physical experiences um presented to people and I didn't know how to do that on the page. Now one of the things for me coming in to the project a little bit later in the game, like after it was established that you guys wanted to make books, is the idea of like approaching the book object as a way to tell the story of these performance nights. And Darren and I have collaborated on zines for quite a while now, so it's always exciting to get like a call from Darren to say, I have a new project, I want you to work on it with me. Um, because Darren's brain for putting together books and putting together zines is kind of this magical thing to behold. He's very specific. He knows, like, all the notes that he wants to hit. So when things are moving really well, I felt like we got things... Um, we made a lot of decisions very quickly, and we established that we wanted to have this, like, pulpy feel to it, uh, referencing, like, older queer magazines, and the three of us, like, hanging around, all, like, looking at sites online, say, oh, we want a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and, like, how do we wrap this all up into how we want to tell the story of these performances through the course of three books. And that's why I love these little details at the on the cover that's just at the front of everyone is saying that it is a performance night. This book is a performance. It was curated by Stephen Raines. And then it's the first thing you see is your introduction and a photo of you in, like, a cum suit or uh, your cock all tied up. And then we, like, jump right into it. 
Yeah. So not only in um, do I in you know the third evening do I talk about my uh, big penis? I actually projected a large photo of it um, from my cock modeling my cock ring modeling days um, because I felt like you know if you're going to talk about it, you might as well show it. Um, what was interesting too about all of us coming up with the concept of the book and the feel that we wanted when we thought about the back of the book and having each performer listing, you know, a bio for each performer, we thought, oh, that we wanted, I think it could have been Darren's idea that to have it look like the old personal ads that you would mm-hmm. see in magazines. And what was funny is it was really hard to find those images of that online, that, yeah. it, that it was an example that we couldn't find a reference for it. Which is so funny because it is this physical object that weighs the book into a specific uh, culture and a specific moment in history. So to just have that not at your fingertips on the internet was a really strange and bizarre thing. performance art which is such a subculture and then you know these evenings did feel you know kind of underground queer performance art and talking about some very subversive acts and moments in people's lives and then to have you Christopher working so intimately with the material later on laying it out and these um very graphic images uh, what was it like for you as a straight man to just kind of like be in this world for such a long period of time working on these books? It was just really fucking exciting. I mean, this is just a wonderful set of books, and I feel so strongly about zines and zine history and the very specific and important place that queer zines have in the history of zines. So being able to just kind of like hang out and be part of it for a little while and to document. Um, a series of performances that happened at Akbar was really wonderful. And like I said, this is not like the first time that I've worked with Darren. This also is not my first queer zine rodeo. It's like yeah. this is always fun and exciting to be working with new people. And um, also this being the second project that I worked on with you, Stephen, anytime they get to work with new people that I haven't uh, worked with before, it opens up this like really large, wonderful world of artists and performers and creative people that... I want to be meeting all the time. So if I can just 
surround myself with these people, these creative people all the time, that makes me way happier. So even just being able to meet Ian for the first time tonight was wonderful because I got to read his text over and over and over again as we were like <laughs> editing this book. So in some ways I felt like I knew Ian really very well and had kind of a sense of his performance until he sat down and then just like blew me away in the backyard here singing about his anus. Like, this yeah. is fucking wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And then for Darren, I'm since you've created, I, I don't know, what's the number? 300? How many zines do you think you've oh, created? like 150 or so. And so what, how, how did this... Well, you even had a solo show. What was the show I went to in San Francisco that was just of your work? Yeah, um, there was a gallery called Bear Ridgeway, and they asked uh, an, another amazing gallerist named Margaret Tedesco, who does second floor projects, if she wanted to uh, curate a, a show at their space. And so she asked me to do a show of all of my published work to date. So that was amazing. That was incredible. Yeah. How was this experience working on this three-book set... Uh, how did it differ, or how was it similar to some of your other collaborations? Um, I think the main difference is that I, it's always my idea to put something together from the start. So gathering the, gathering the like organizing, curating, and gathering the material for a project is always my job. So this was different because it already existed, or the at least the performances already existed, and you it's something that you brought into existence in a collaborative way with your with your performers and artists and then um so it was different because i the material was all there and i just wanted to gather it together whereas oftentimes when i come up with an idea to do something i, I don't know what i'm going to get i work with people whose work i like and who i like as people so i kind of have a good idea of what might happen but this i the material already existed in a certain way so i kind of knew I guess the guesswork was taken out to a certain extent because I already knew how fabulous it was going to be. And there's also something interesting about like organizing projects or putting zines together that isn't material that you yourself have created. It becomes a really interesting puzzle. And uh, Darren and I have both worked on zines in both ways, where it is all our material or all like gathering material from other places. Um, and I always find that to be a really interesting exercise. You're working with a whole different set of aesthetics and a whole lot of um, different voices. So then the challenge is how you're processing it all, how you're unifying it, mm -hmm. but still allowing for these like peaks and valleys within the book that creates a really wonderful uh, sense of motion or a sense of pacing. And that is kind of the most interesting thing for me. It's how we're playing around and like with the nuts and bolts of the book to physically create an object that is encoded with the experience of the evenings. The whole story was performed on April 7th, 2013 in Los Angeles at Akbar, organized and curated by Stephen Raines uh, with Andrew J. Henkes, David LeBaron, Noel Alumit, R. Daniel Foster, Gabby Kessler, Christopher Lung, Ian McKinnon, Martin Matamoros, photography by Matt Baum. Special thanks to the Akbar staff, Scott Craig, Peter Alexander, Tad Makovsky, John Baum, Stephen Cunningham, Lube and Poppers, layout and production by Christopher Katarambakis. Did I just, I totally fucked up your name. Cardambikis. Cardambikis. <laughs> sorry about that. We've been friends for so long. I know. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Um, Darren Klein and Stephen Raines. <laughs> Come As You Are was performed in Los Angeles at Akbar on October 13th, 2013. Organized by Stephen Raines as part of the performance series organized by Andrew Henkes and David LeBaron. 
It featured performers John Cantwell, Ben Cuevas, Keith Hunter, Pip Lilly, Ian McKinnon, Brendan Shukart, and Rich Yap. Uh, photography was by Matt Baum. Special thanks to the performers, the Akbar staff, Scott Craig, Peter Alexander, Stephen Cunningham, Lube, and Poppers. Layout and production by Christopher Cardambicus, Darren Klein, and Stephen Rains. Cocktails was performed in Los Angeles at the Akbar on April 27, 2014. It was curated and organized by Stephen Rains. It was part of Apartment 3F, uh, which is run by Andrew Henkes and David LeBaron. It featured Tori Greger, Johnny McGovern, Ian McKinnon, Wes Wood. There were the photographer for the evening was Matt Baum. Special thanks to the performers, the Akbar staff, Scott Craig, Peter Alexander, Todd Makovsky, Stephen Cunningham, Lube, and Poppers. Layout and production of the books by Christopher Cardambicus, Darren Klein, and Stephen Rains. <laughs>